Well hello, here we are again and it's Passing the Baton Series 2 and the title of this month's teaching is What Does It Mean to Be in Christ? and the date's the 30th of May 2009. I think if we were numbering it actually it would be number 25. God's purpose for his church at this time is to elevate her to the place he had in mind before the foundation of the earth. As a first step to this, we really need to get a hold of what Jesus did on the cross and begin to apply all these wonderful truths to our lives and live them out. Some of you may feel that this is baby stuff, but it's remarkable how often we just have to go back to the fundamental principles of our faith to ensure that we're actually living them. So bear with me today, open your hearts, you may learn something new or at least see something from a different perspective. You might even have an aha moment. The life of a believer is a paradox. We are saved, we're being saved and we will be saved. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ and we're on a journey into the heart of God. These statements show us that we are secure and safe but not there yet. We have a way to go. Our destination is an ascended lifestyle, a lifestyle where we live and abide in the presence, doing the things Jesus did, in communion with the Father, releasing all the blessings of heaven onto the earth. That's our journey from Nepios to Huios, from a babe without speech to fully mature sons. Those of you who have a computer will be familiar with the minus to plus sign which increases or decreases the size on the screen. I'd just like you right now to draw your own line and ask God where you are from the start to the finish line, the minus to the plus. The result could be interesting and it'll locate for you where you are and where you're heading. Our job in this whole thing is to stay where God has placed us in Christ. The top and bottom of it all is believing where God has placed us and abiding, staying, living there in Christ. So I want to talk a few moments now about security, identity and belonging and the divine exchange. In John 3.3 we have a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus regarding the second birth. And I'm reading from John 3, 3, 3 to 6 in the NIV. And, and Nicodemus has asked Jesus something. In reply, Jesus re re declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one, Jesus says, can see this kingdom I represent without being born again from above. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus struggles with the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can answer, enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit so clear. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit 
to spirit. When you became a Christian, you stepped into this new kingdom. What God wanted to work in you was a complete transformation of your mind. Not a makeover, but a transformation. Romans 12, 2 in the Amplified Bible says this, Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external, superficial customs, but be transformed, changed, by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. The word transform in the Greek is metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis, meaning a complete change, we use it, don't we, of a chrysalis to a butterfly. That's what God wants for you, because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The moment you believed on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father took you and plunged you into the one place where you could get all your prayers answered and all your needs met, in Christ. When God places us in his Son, he does so as a babe placed, if you will, in the womb of a mother. Jesus is a safe place, a growing place, where the Holy Spirit broods over us to bring the Christ life to maturity, to conform us to his image. We are in him, he is in us, he is in the Father. We're double wrapped. Our only job in all of this is to stay where we're put. The task of the enemy is to get us out of that safe place. He works to dislodge us, to abort the baby, to cause it to miscarry, to bring it forth prematurely, anything to stop it coming to term, to maturity. Our part is to remain, dwell, abide in the womb of Christ who is our life as surely as the mother is the source of life to the unborn child. If we dislocate and dislodge ourselves, we fall back on our own resources to bring this child to birth, which we cannot do and we struggle. We are trying to do the Holy Spirit's work for him. We are not meant to do his work for him. We are meant to cooperate, make it easy for him, to transform us into the image of Christ. John 15, 1-16 in the message says it like this. The message is really a brilliant version to read if you want to fully understand what's being said. This is Jesus speaking now. I'm the real vine and my father is the farmer. He cuts off every branch of me that doesn't bear grapes. And every branch that is grape-bearing he prunes back so that it will bear even more. You're already pruned back by the message I've spoken. Live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you're joined to me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation, intimate, intimate, 
and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't do a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You're my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. Nope, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me, remember. I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil. As fruit bearers, whatever you ask the Father in relation to me, he gives you. Scripture tells us that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall be like him. As the tree, so the fruit. Like begets like. Colossians 3, verse 4 in the New King James Version. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We enter this life through obedience, and his life keeps us. Want to be my friends, Jesus asks us, do whatever I command you. Love and give is what he commands. The real command of God is that you give away all that God's given you, then it can come back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, abundance. I want to talk about emigration. In the fictional story of Tarzan and the Apes, a British couple and their baby son experience a plane crash in which the father and mother and all the other passengers are killed, but the baby survives. The child is raised by wolves, and as he grows, he keeps company with apes. This lost son, Tarzan, is later discovered by a scientist investigating the behaviour and lifestyle of the apes. The scientist finds the crash site and evidence of Tarzan's true identity, his lost heritage. It transpires that he is the heir of a vast title, estate and great fortune of which he knew nothing. The scientist teaches him to speak English and convinces him to return to England where he's taken to meet his grandfather the Earl who is relieved and pleased to have his heir restored to him. In his grandfather's mansion this son yet half formed sees portraits of himself as a baby with his parents. Reality sweeps over him. This is where I came from. I'm not an animal. 
I'm a son. When the eyes of your spirit man truly behold Jesus, the memory of who you really are is awakened. Father's lost son, needing to be found. Your journey then is to discover your truest identity. You were predestined. Your origin is in your Heavenly Father. You were lost and completely ignorant of your true family and your heavenly home. So you start on the journey of return. You emigrate to your original family home from which you were estranged, a place you have altogether forgotten. A strange foreign kingdom compared with the place of your guardianship with your earthly parents. It's just a fictional tale about Tarzan, but it illustrates quite nicely what happens to us at the rebirth. The Father himself is where you began and where you belong. You come home. Colossians 1.12 says this, or 1.13, I beg your pardon. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We've emigrated from one country to another. We've left our native country to go and live elsewhere. We're citizens of another kingdom. We've moved from one kingdom to another. From the earthly to the heavenly. Positionally, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. We believed on the death and resurrection of Jesus and we emigrated, we moved. We left our native country and we moved house. We went from being children of earthly parents to children of God. We still have our earthly links, but our heavenly link is the highest one. Our allegiance is now to another king. In place of the king of self, we now serve the king of kings. Ephesians 2 verse 6 in the Amplified Bible says this, And he raised us up together with him, and made us sit down together, giving us joint seating with him in the heavenly sphere, by virtue of our being in Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. In this position, every day we're being changed from one degree of glory to another as by the Spirit of the Lord. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And here I'm reading it from the Amplified Bible. And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continued to behold in the Word of God as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are constantly being transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendour and from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this is our journey, being changed from one degree of glory to another. Positionally, we are in Christ, but our lives don't always reflect this. We are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. We're transitioning from orphans to sons. 
Incidentally, those of you who have a computer, try www.biblegateway.com if you haven't heard of it before. It will give you 92 references to this phrase, in Christ, if you want an in-depth study. You'll notice that when Paul speaks in his letters, he, he uses two phrases. He uses in Christ, on Christo, and in the Lord. In Christ, we are seated in heavenly places. It's positional. When he speaks of us being in the Lord, he's speaking about our behaviour. It's an interesting study to go through and pick out the differences. So just let's start with the phrase in Christ. What exactly does it mean that we are in Christ? The moment we were born again from above, a legal transaction took place. From being natural children of our earthly parents, we became a child of our Heavenly Father. We moved, as I said, from one kingdom to another, from the earthly to the heavenly. We are now twice born. We're born from beneath, earthly, and from above, heavenly. There's now a pull being exerted upon us to live our lives in a different way and from a different place. <coughs> Excuse me. The grace that saved us also moved us. We're no longer subject to the natural but to the spiritual and our warfare begins almost immediately. We're debtors now, Paul says, not to the flesh, to the earthly, but to the spirit, the heavenly. You'll find this in Romans 8, 12 and 13 and I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh. We're not obligated to our carnal nature, to a life ruled by the standards set up by the dictates of the flesh. For if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, you'll surely die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the evil deeds prompted by the body, you shall really and genuinely live forever. The blood of Jesus brought us into full relationship with the Father, opened the way for us to be in the family of God the moment we believed. We now have the divine DNA. We are blood relatives of our Heavenly Father and the blood of Jesus Christ is our line and is the bloodline under which we now live. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Outside of that we are not brothers and sisters. Everything for us now is in the Beloved where we are accepted. Ephesians 1 verse 6 in the New King James Version says this, To the praise of the glory of his, of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. We have a legal entitlement therefore to inherit everything that is Jesus' inheritance. Everything Jesus has come into is ours also. If Jesus came as a man, not as God, and only did the things he saw the Father doing, and we are in him, our inheritance 
is to be exactly the same as his. Casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, doing good. That is our inheritance in Christ. And along the way provision for every need and divine health are also ours. Whatever keeps you tied to I can't, you will need deliverance from. Because you were born to soar like an eagle, not to be earthbound like a chicken. 1 Peter 1.23 in the Amplified Bible says this, You have been regenerated, born again, not from a mortal origin, seed, sperm, but from one that is immortal, by the ever-living and lasting Word of God. We've been born again through a seed, a sperm, in just the same way as we were conceived in the natural we have been conceived in the spiritual and we have the same DNA as Jesus. You have a divine DNA in you. You have all the attributes of God in seed form inside you. What change do you think it would make in your life if you really believe that? How would it change the way you live and think about yourself and others? What instead ofs would you need to put into practice? Um, I believe instead of I don't believe. A divine DNA, every attribute of Jesus in seed form within you. That beloved is what happened to you at the moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit plunged you into Christ and Christ into you. You were born again of incorruptible seed, not perishable seed. You have eternal life now. Eternal life isn't something that's going to happen to you when you die. You already have it. And then the Holy Spirit filled you with himself. Amplified Bible again, John 14 18 to 20. Jesus speaking. I will not leave you as orphans, comfortless, desolate, bereaved, forlorn, helpless. I'll come back to you. Just a little while now and the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that time, when that day comes, you will know for yourselves that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. From before the creation, God the Father's had a dream that his house would be filled with children, regenerated into the likeness of his Son, who reciprocate his love. Jesus finds us in our orphan state, like Tarzan in the jungle, alienated from the Father and through his last will and testament gives us the right to become children and if children then heirs. As his children we inherit citizenship in the kingdom of God. Romans 8.17 New International Version Now if we are his children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings 
in order that we may also share in his glory. When we read the Gospels and the Book of Acts, we're reading what our life should be all about. All the resources of heaven are at our disposal. The whole creation waits in eager expectation for the manifestation or revealing of the sons of God, the huios, the fully mature sons, Romans 8.19, for the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The King James Version says the manifestation of the sons of God, the demonstration, appearance, expression of the sons of God. We live in a world which wants to see things, a show and tell generation. No longer is the organ of receptivity the ear but the eye. The people out there need to see a demonstration of the power of God in their lives that they might believe. Satan is happily drawing them into his signs and wonders. We need to be drawing them into Jesus' signs and wonders. People are hungry to experience something, not to hear words. They equate that with religion. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had plenty of words but no power. No actions which backed up what they said. Paul said, I come with demonstration of the Spirit and power. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, New International Version. And Paul speaking. My message and my preaching <clears throat> were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Beloved, our mandate in the earth is to bring heaven down on earth as it is in heaven. Our journey is that from child to adult to fully mature son where Father will be able to release us into that manifestation of power and the church will become that which Jesus intended for her a powerful, life-changing, delivering, healing, saving nation, pointing people to the Christ. Romans 8.12 says this, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. If we're to come into our inheritance, some things will have to go. Life in the Spirit is always about displacement. It's about instead of. Power instead of weakness. Beauty instead of ashes. Joy instead of mourning. Our inheritance is to reign and rule and display all the fullness that is in Christ. We are transitioning from Nepios, that child without speech, to Huios, a fully mature son. We're transitioning from being earthbound to an ascended lifestyle where the abundant life of Jesus is made manifest in and through us. Beloved, we're on a journey. Our inheritance is both governmental and incremental. As we prove out 
as God entrusts us with more of his kingdom rule, our authority increases, as do our permissions. Our aim should be to be an exponential growth curve. Exponential means rapidly becoming greater in size, as the mouth of a trumpet, very fast growth and curve. But we cannot take ground from the enemy if he has ground in us. I recently did a teaching, and most of you will have heard it, which majored on whether we live in the flesh or the spirit. The flesh is a usurper and it will keep you from inheriting. It will keep you earthbound. At the fall it usurped the throne of the Spirit of God and took ascendancy. So soon as we're born again the battle for supremacy within starts. This usurper has ruled in our lives since the fall and it does not give way easily. The only way is to treat it as Paul tells us in Romans 8. We have to reckon the thing dead and ourselves alive to God. The message says it beautifully in Romans 6. It's headed up uh, when death becomes life. Verse 1, Romans 6. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realise we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind, and when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we are going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you mustn't give sin a vote in the way you conduct your life. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time, remember you've been raised from the dead, into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. What is true freedom? 
verse 15. So since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God, and freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found out you don't happen to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise! A whole, healed, put-together life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus our Master. Absolutely brilliant. In Jesus' day, Herod was a usurper to the throne. He was an Edomite, one of the descendants of Esau, and he represents our old nature. He was king by default. As a result, he was constantly fearful his throne would be taken away from him. He was insecure and full of fear. The result of this insecurity was a need to control. You can read about him in Luke chapter 1. He ruled the people ruthlessly because of his insecurity and dominated by terror. He was in league with the Pharisees and sought as they did to kill the Christ child. If you're still living in your old DNA, you have Herod ruling you and you will be insecure, fearful and quite probably controlling. And the king will be seeking to kill off the Christ child within just as Herod and the religious leaders did. You're under the rule of a usurper when you should be under the rule of the Holy Spirit. There's an old Pentecostal story of a red Indian who became a Christian and uh, when the preacher inquired how he was doing he said this, well preacher it's like this. It depends on which dog I feed, the black one or the white one. The implication was that the black dog was his old sin nature and the white one his new nature in Christ and whichever one he fed grew and ruled him. The problem with this story, which incidentally I used for years, is that the black dog is actually dead and buried. I happily used it in my ignorance for illustrative purposes without realising that I was teaching people how to keep their black dog alive.
that black dog died with Jesus on the cross and was buried with him in baptism. This is why full immersion is so important. If you've never gone under the waters of baptism, you've never actually celebrated the fact that your old black dog has no longer got any power over you, because he's not only dead, but buried. Something that has died has the remotest possibility of being revived, but once it's been buried, no chance. We need to appropriate both the dying and the burial in order to come into resurrection life. This is our inheritance. Why do so many of us live defeated lives, striving and struggling to get there, always trying, never obtaining? We haven't understood the enormity of what happened on the cross because we've never understood the enormity of the fall. We live with the heredity and amnesia of the fall without understanding our true state and therefore we don't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us. We're just like Tarzan, if you will, buried somewhere deep in the jungle without any awareness of our inheritance. Brute beasts, as Psalm 51 says. Jesus has changed all that permanently. Our quest is to move into all he won for us and live there. I meditated for a short time recently on the scripture in Ephesians which says to the intent that the manifest wisdom of God might be revealed through the church. That's Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I only actually got as far as his intent was, his purpose was. As I meditated on his purpose, this piece of what I suppose you would call prose came regarding the extent of the fall. I'm not given to writing poetry or prose, I never have done. Um, but this is what came out of thinking deeply about the intent of God. And I've called it, he calls her bride. Falling, twisting, turning, spinning, down and down, into darkness, amnesia, something half remembered then lost. Darkness of soul, darkness of mind, darkness of understanding, weakness, blindness, hard landing. Till the soil, sweat Adam, suffer Adam, Die, Adam. In dying, you'll die, Adam. But what's this? I can't see. My eyes are dim. A man prepared to go. Father, I will bring them back to us. My love sees their state, their brokenness. They know not what they do. Darkened understanding. Blinded. Back turned from his gaze. Shifting, hiding, covering, self-protecting. Even redeemed, they know not. They understand little, still in darkness. Their thinking dulled, eyes blurred. 
but I shall restore, and it shall be again, the voice of bridegroom and of bride, they shall be mine, and heaven's joy shall sound, bliss undreamed of shall abound again. Thorns, nails, dragging, tender flesh, searing, tearing, it's done. I will, Father, that they should be with me again. It's done. My Lord receives his crown, his bride, his own, and she in accents sweet declares, I am his, I am the bride, and he is mine. Now, low at his feet she sinks, understanding come, vision clear, the bride, kissing nail marks, imprints of his love, forever there to show the price he paid to bring her to his side, his bride. Not until all is stilled and heaven's bliss is entered in shall we in wonder understand that which to us now is dim, half forgotten, never understood, the depths to which we fell, the depths to which he went, to restore us to himself again, bride and bridegroom at one, to spend eternity in heaven's bliss again. There's nothing more for us to do but rest in the finished work of the cross. Jesus said, it is finished, it is not half done. There's a part for us to play, but it's not struggling to get where God has already placed us. The whole battle in the Christian walk is to stay put. It's not striving to obtain the new which is already given us. And the way we do this is simply called grace. Grace, grace and more grace. We are saved by grace, we continue by grace. Grace enables us to make mistakes and not suffer condemnation. Grace allows us to expand and grow without fear of failure. Grace is freedom expressed, grace is elastic. It allows you to run but it always pulls you back to him. We enter our Christian life in an ungodly condition and the Lord provides us with a room carefully padded with the grace of God so that we can learn our lessons without getting seriously hurt. It's God's rubber room. We bounce around in there and finally exit a little godlier than when we went in, as Bob Mumford puts it. Grace is a great big rubber room. A trampoline where you can bounce off the walls or bounce up and down, falling over and getting up again. Grace enables you to perfect the art of bouncing back. Mistakes are the soil of growth. If we will not take risks, we will not grow. If we will not say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, we won't move out when he asks us for fear of getting it wrong. God is big enough for our mistakes. Romans 8.1 tells us this in the New International Version. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Being without condemnation or judgment does not mean that God approves disobedience or sin. He wants us to learn to walk with him, but when we fall or fail, Jesus absorbs the judgment that should have been ours. He's already taken it on the cross. We can embrace our own failure without self-condemnation because Christ took it on himself. That, beloved, is good news. Should we refuse God's grace, we impeach ourselves. We accuse ourselves, we put ourselves on trial, we prosecute and charge ourselves. Anyone do that? How often, when we fail or fall, do we spend hours, if not days, kicking ourselves because we missed it, or we perceive we did? Grace sets us free to fail and get up again into the race. If failing once makes you want to run from God instead of to God, you have not understood grace. Grace enables you to run to him every single time. As you move into a life of living under grace, not under law, you'll find yourself absorbing others' failures and extending the same mercy and kindness that your Heavenly Father extends to you. You're developing the mind of Christ. You are being transformed in the spirit of your mind. That which shocked and upset you will no longer have the power to affect you. You'll see from a heavenly perspective. You'll see that others too are in God's rubber room or on his trampoline bouncing around and that your part is simply to love, help and encourage them on their journey. You'll cease to judge them. You will see them differently with the eyes of Christ and you will encourage them to grow. Through Jesus, God provided grace instead of law in order that we might grow up. If we see grace properly and apply it properly, we will learn to love ourselves and others through it. Beloved, you live in the unlimited favour of God through the finished work of the cross. You are accepted in the beloved, a well-beloved child. Grace is yours, oceans of it. Grace is the empowering presence of Jesus Christ. To the extent that you allow him to live his life through you, you will experience his grace. Grace is a person, not a commodity. He doesn't come in precise measurements like quarts or gallons. He is full of grace and truth because that's who he is, God incarnate. God came to us in the incarnation so that grace and truth would be available to you and to me. The more we realize that grace is a person and truth is a person, the more we can understand how God handles sin and our humanity. Grace is the foundation to receive more grace. The more we understand grace, the more we're able to receive it, enjoy it, live in it and walk in it.
in other words grace upon grace but it is possible to cut ourselves off from grace Galatians 5 tells us that you have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by law you've fallen from grace the Galatian Christians had gone back to the law and severed themselves from the grace of God and the opposite of staying in grace is to give up we attempt the Christian life and think it doesn't work because we don't build into it the twin aspects of failure and learning but God built them in he built into his plan failure and learning he provided for us a practice area in which we learn if we will stay in the elastic of grace God will bring his glory to pass and the image of Jesus will be stamped on us in yet another area of our lives that's what our journey is all about the Greek root word for grace comes from charis c-h-a-r-i-s meaning favor goodwill and loving kindness favor is expressed as merciful kindness by God exerting his holy influence on our souls as he turns them to Jesus keeps strengthens and increases them in faith knowledge and affection and kindles them to the exercise of Christian virtues the idea is a, a coming near or inclining towards God's affectionate nature inclines towards us because he decides to do it not because there's something in us that makes him do so it's his nature to love and to keep it's his nature full of loving kindness mercy and truth it's his nature beloved and it's towards you without grace we cannot either be saved or instructed Jesus is God's grace which he sent us Titus chapter 2 11 and 12 reading from the New International Version for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age grace then is God's free act which excludes merit and is not hindered by guilt or failure grace like love is a virtue coming from God there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it because it's no more hindered by sin than it's conditioned by works it's free towards us in Christ wonderful free grace grace is space to live and grow in the warmth of God's smile relax let grace teach you and instruct you in the way you should go let grace release you to make mistakes and fail without doing an autopsy every time something goes wrong grace grace 
and more grace. Grace is the rubber room. Father uses situations to train us to be obedient. He trains us so that as we bounce around, we learned how grace works and who God is. Grace prevails and covers us while we're learning. Amazing grace. There's a hurting world out there waiting for us to come through this rubber room, to get off this trampoline so that we can let Jesus show us how to represent the Father in order that we might bring heaven to earth as the manif manifested sons of God. Joyce Mayer had a word from God regarding grace and it was this. Very few of my children really trust me or depend on me. I have mountains, endless mountains of grace stored up that I've never touched because I find very few who will open up their hearts through faith to receive my grace. Do you really want to know what grace is? Well listen and I'll give you a new and different definition of what is the grace of God. Grace is you letting me do what I want to do in this earth through you. It requires you being absolutely still, mentally and physically still, immovable in your decision to wait upon me for the desired results, the ideas, the hopes. The dreams that are inside you are not yours. They originated in me. That is in my spirit within you. It is not your job to bring them to pass. It is your job to be a vessel or channel for my grace. Not one of you can make anything happen that will be solid enough to make anything happen. This is the reason you experience many ups and downs. You're trying to stand on the flimsiness of your flesh rather than on the solidness of the rock. Are you standing on the flimsiness of the flesh or on the solidness of the rock? You do all right till the storm hits, then you're right back where you started. You need to be emptied of human effort, the cares of daily living and fleshly frustrations. But you see, even this must be done by my grace. Effort cannot eradicate effort. Frustration cannot get rid of frustration. And care cannot eliminate care. But grace can rid you of every hindrance. And you will find that as more grace begins to flow, it will generate more grace and more grace and more and more grace until you have become that channel of my grace. There will be a never-ending flow of power and the result will be that my hopes and dreams and ideas will be birthed through you at no cost to you, with no carnal effort on your part. And I will be glorified in this earth. And you, you will have the privilege and the honour of sharing in it and being a joint heir in that glory. My grace is available. Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
and then she goes on with a poem. I want you to face the mountain so you can see when the mountain is out of the way all there is left is me. Only I can move the mountain, only I can push it away, only I can face the problems you face today. Your only job is to believe, to listen to my voice and when you hear what I command, obedience is your choice. But I will not make it too difficult, for the victory is already mine, and I will fill you through my spirit, through you my grace will shine. Not when you're perfect, like you think you ought to be, but when your heart is willing to become more and more like me. So going back to your little ruler of negative to positive, are you living in the finished work of the cross or are you still doing it yourself? Trying to crucify yourself with no success at all. Are you living under law or are you living under grace? Colossians 2 verse 10 in the New American Standard Bible says this and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. In the matter of our ongoing transformation into becoming like Christ there are two extremes at work. Firstly there's how the Father sees us in Christ as a finished work. He sees you today as you will be on that day. Secondly, that's how we see ourselves as we go through that process of change. God is present future with us, that is he deals with us in terms of who we already are in Christ. This is an eternal work and it's already completed in Jesus. The Father deals with us through the context or in the context of eternity. And the Holy Spirit works with us in the context of the here and now. We are present future with God, in Christ, learning to be Christ-like. And Jesus stands in the gap between our present and our future, interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 Isn't that lovely? He fills our credibility gap. He stands between where we are now and where we will be and fills the gap for us. The Holy Spirit promotes Christ to us and in us as the hope, confident expectation of glory. In the Father's eyes, seen through the lens of Jesus, we're complete in Christ and welcome in the throne room of his presence. So far as Father is concerned, he only ever sees the finished product. The journey is the process we're in, the daily transformation into his image. We can be bold, therefore, in our quest for mercy and grace. We can be bold about being in Jesus and humble about our current place of growth in becoming Christ-like. It's a wonderful and a unique place of favour in which Father has placed us before him. 
he treats us as complete while we're still a work in progress. This means that grace, favour and inheritance can come to us because of his acceptance of us in the Beloved, Ephesians 1.6, not because of our performance. This gives us huge boldness to come before the Father, knowing that he has gifts and favour to bestow upon us as he would bestow them on Jesus. So we can be humble on earth and confident in heaven. But there's unbelief. No one wants to hear that they're in unbelief. It actually hits our pride. But the truth is that the blood of Jesus has removed every barrier that separates us from God except one, and that one is unbelief. God calls us to have faith in what Jesus has done. He calls us to believe. Many say, I cannot feel that I am getting through to God. There must be a blockage. It must be me. Quite often they'll turn themselves inside out, trying to get to the root of their lack of being able to feel God as they desire. Our new life in Jesus begins with an act of faith. We have an encounter with the living God. Believe he is, and faith moves us into the new birth. We can't see him, but we believe. We're forgiven. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a fact. God is faithful and just and will forgive us as we ask him. 1 John 1 9 However, there's another element in the equation. Satan has just lost you from his kingdom and he isn't going to sit down under this. Whilst there's nothing he can do to alter what God has done in Jesus, he can try to make you disbelieve it. So he will continue to undermine you in any way he can. He'll point out how unworthy you are of salvation. He will tempt you to look within yourself at your inadequacies and cause you to feel that your situation is hopeless. If you listen to him, he'll convince you that not only are you unworthy, but because of your weakness and failure, you might as well give up on the whole thing because you're never going to get anywhere. Beloved, he is a liar and the father of lies. A sense of hopelessness and despair enfolds some people because the enemy succeeds in confirming the low opinion of themselves that they've always had. The hard fact is that he achieves his purpose not because God doesn't love them or because he has rejected or left them, but because they do not believe the facts about the cross the blood of Jesus and the new birth, all of which have made them acceptable and righteous in his sight. Do not allow the enemy or your own self-pity to distract your attention from the cross. The more you look at yourself, the more you will certainly discover weakness, failure and negativity. 
Look away to the finished work of the cross. Point to Jesus and let the enemy fight it out with him. Make a choice. Make a better one. Choose to believe which one you're instead of. Take a chance on it. Believe that he does love and accept you right where you are, right now, and step out in that. I guarantee you will not find him to fail. He'll nearly kill you with his kindness. He knows what he's getting when he gets us, beloved, and he is quite confident in his own ability to keep us and bring us through. He is the most confident person I know. Okay, so having had a look at uh, what it means to be in Christ, what does it mean when it says in the Lord? And the context of the passage will show you. I'll give you one or two examples here. Philippians 3 verse 1. This is the goal of life. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Philippians 4 1. Think of excellence in this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Philippians 4 verse 2. Brotherly love, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. He's saying, you are in the Spirit together, live in harmony together. Philippians 4 verse 10, beautiful book Philippians, God's provision, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity. And uh, Philippians, uh, sorry, Colossians 3 18 and this is family relationships. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You notice the difference. It's behavioural, it's not a positional. So you can see from these scriptures that when Paul refers to us being in the Lord, he's referring to the behaviour which we should exhibit as sons of our Father. He urges us that we should no longer live as the Gentiles in the futility of their minds and Ephesians 4.17 in the New American Standard says it very nicely it's headed up the Christian's walk so this I say and to affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Hardness of heart is almost always equated with unbelief. Just have a quick look at Hebrews 4 and I'm using the King James Version because it says exactly what I want it to say. Some of the other versions use other words but this says it like it is. Hebrews 4 verses 1 to 6 and the jolly old King James. Let us therefore fear lest a promise of being left lest a promise being left us of enter in into his rest any of you should seem to come short of it. 
For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day in this wise, and God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. The Israelites didn't come into rest simply because they did not believe. There was a rest for the children of God, a Sabbath rest. The initiative in your life was taken by God and it's always taken by him. And he's big, he's big, he's big. What would it take for you to believe that God is unceasingly magnificent? What mindset change? What attitude adjustment? All day, every day, God. Unceasingly magnificent. If you had to approach all day, every day, thinking that God was unceasingly magnificent. That's the bride. She's talking about her beloved and listening to the heart of the beloved. I'm the glorious companion of an incredible king. We're to share his throne. We have to learn we are joint heirs and behave accordingly. A joint heir cannot work alone. They can only work in partnership with another. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. The bride is constantly declaring, I am the highly favoured one of God. I'm the glorious companion of an incredible king. John fifteen sixteen says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give it to you. The initiative in your life beloved was taken by God and it's held by him. He chose you, he called you, you couldn't have chosen him if he hadn't chosen you. You could not have come to repentance and faith unless his spirit had first convicted you of sin and shown you the futility of your life without Jesus. You couldn't have put your faith in him as Lord and Saviour unless God himself had somehow begun to open your spiritual understanding. It was God's purpose, not yours, to bring you to himself and into his kingdom. Hallelujah. Settle it up the front end then. The old man's dead. You're living in the new. Come in and enjoy all the abundance of Father's house. And the possibilities are limitless. 
Here's a poem written by someone who went to the recent Limitless Possibilities Conference in Vacaville, California, where Graham Cook currently resides. She's headed it up, Limitless Possibilities. I saw only fences. You opened gates. I said I can't. You said I know. That's what makes it so perfect. I was drowning in my smallness. You overwhelmed me with your bigness. When I couldn't imagine a future, you whispered and kissed and sang your song for me till I simply had to follow, until I found myself standing before a door, knocking. And somewhere in the knocking, in the waiting, I began to dream of a life beyond the door. At some point in the knocking, while I waited, you stole my fears and placed hope in my pocket. I stopped crying about endings and began looking for a beginning until the door vanished when I least expected and I tumbled into a space so wide, so vast, so blue, so you that there are no ceilings, no walls, not even a floor to restrain me a landscape without limits endless plains of hope, rivers of renewal, everests of imagination their summits still in clouds, begging to be climbed. I'm surrounded here by runners, climbers, dreamers. Explorers who live in the question, what's out there? Adventurers without maps, who navigate with their compasses set on true north. So I stand still, listening, resting, knowing that you are smiling at my wonder delighting in my discoveries of who you really are and who I really am until I gather myself and begin to run and run and climb and swim and dance into your limitless possibilities for me. This is where we should be living in the knowledge that we're joined heirs with Christ we shall reign and rule with him. This isn't a fairy story, this is fact. And we shall live happily ever after. It's time for our intentions to catch up with desire. We have the desire. When discipline and desire get married, they produce delight. We need intention. We need to be purposeful. We need to match God's intention towards us so that we can move quickly, strongly and powerfully. We need to believe that God is delighted with us. He's still got work he wants to do with us, but he is delighted with us. The Holy Spirit is releasing ourselves so we can see who we are. We're the bride. That should excite us. Any girl getting married is a tad excited about it. The Holy Spirit is releasing the capacity to live as the bride, to pray like we have incredible favour and take advantage of it. God loves it. He loves it when we just take things from him. It's ours anyway. So let's stop begging for the things he's given us permission for. Take it. It's ours Take it, it's yours. Take advantage, he says, of my grace, of my goodness.
You have to say yes to who the Father says you are. Accept it. You are the beloved of God. I am the beloved of God. It's vital to believe everything in God's heart towards you is true. Your identity in Christ is so important because your inheritance follows it. You cannot come into your inheritance in unbelief. You were chosen from before the foundation of the world. That is pretty intentional. Stop waiting for God to do something. Understand he's already done it. You're in Christ. You're there, beloved. He's placed you there. The God of the universe has placed you in his Son. The romance has begun. It's not someday my prince will come. He has come. Find your place. The next move is yours. Everything in Christ is yes and amen. Days of begging are over. These are the time of the bridegroom and the bride. Everything in Christ is yes and amen. But you have to say yes in return. You have to agree with Father's perspective on you. You have to own up to who Father says you are. You have to enter into the divine romance in praise and thanksgiving, rejoicing that you are the beloved. It is so vital for us to believe, to believe that everything in God's heart towards us is true. And if it's true, we have to step into it and all the provision that goes with it. Your identity in Christ is so important because your inheritance will follow that identity. If your identity is off track, you'll never realise the fullness of your inheritance. The assignment he will give you is in direct proportion to your identity in the eyes of God. If we don't see ourselves as the beloved, we will not ask for the things that he wants to give us. If we don't see ourselves as his eternal companion, we may never fully experience the partnership in the Holy Spirit which God wants us to experience. When he says, ask and keep on asking and you will receive, seek, knock and it's going to happen. All of this will take you out of being earthbound in your thinking and praying, your lifestyle, and cause you to soar like the eagle that you were meant to be. You're already accepted in the Beloved. Stop trying to deserve what he is releasing. In Christ all things belong to you. Take possession of those things with his permission. As the beloved of God, it's your joy to be romanced by Jesus and to respond to his loving affections. If he's saying yes and amen, you've got to say yes and amen. Get into agreement with him. Be ready to say yes to him.
If there's an area of your life right now you don't like, that's the area God is planning to move on next. It's so important that you allow yourself to be radically loved by God. Permission has been granted for you to have an extreme makeover in your relationship with the Lord. This is not a time to hold back. Tell him you want your heart to go to a deeper place. When you love, you know, you lose caution. You can't love and be cautious because love is about giving your heart. Engage your heart with his. Holy Spirit, would you take away logic and reason? Would you give us creative imagination? Would you enlighten the eyes of our heart? Cause us to dream. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you're so big. So big. Father, I ask right now for everyone listening to this on CD or wherever, that Lord, you'll burst through every obstacle, you'll break down every barricade. In the name of Jesus, I ask for a new identity to form on the inside of us. I'm the beloved of God. God is taking my heart out of this guarded place. Help us to trust you with our hearts, Lord, because you have incredible affection for us. I am the beloved of God. I'm his glorious bride, his eternal companion. And my life is going to change from this moment on because I'm going to start thinking like a bride love, beauty, affection. In Jesus' name, help us, Lord. Romance us. Come after us, Father. Captivate us, Lord. In Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. God bless you and thank you so much for listening.